You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Liberty Family Church. For more information about our church, head to the website, libertyfamilychurch.net.au. Isn't it good to um, be part of a holistic, you know, sense of church family and community as we come together on a Sunday and every day throughout the week, you know, this is just a the smallest little margin of our weeks that we spend together on a Sunday morning. But, yeah, doing things like farewelling you guys and Bless Sunday and all the kids' stuff, like, yeah, I love that about Sundays is it's a real sense of that highlight and celebration of, you know, God's work throughout our lives in the rest of the week as well. But now we're going to come to um, the message this morning and, um, yeah, we are continuing in our God's Story series. And last week, uh, Joel shared uh, about how God miraculously saved Jerusalem under siege um, in the time of the kings um, from the advancing Assyrian army, how King Sennacherib, with all his multitudes of military forces, were surrounding Jerusalem and with nothing left to do um, but to pray, King Hezekiah got down on his knees and he laid it out all before the Lord and um, he sought God's intervention and salvation in that time. And who remembers that, boy, did God save. It's incredible. Like, we often don't remember this story in the Bible because it's tucked away there um, amongst all the kings, but 185,000 of the Assyrian army were wiped out in a night by the angel of the Lord. That is incredible. Like, I think Joel referenced like two MCGs full almost of, of people just wiped out in order to save Jerusalem from um, coming um, under the Assyrian occupation. Um, that is absolutely incredible. God is sovereign and mighty and he hears our prayers and he answers. Amen. And we can gain encouragement from that today. Um, and last week covered a lot of biblical territory, so to speak, through the period of the kings. From the end of David's reign, we saw how Israel continued to just uh, forget the Lord basically, and they walked further and further away. Their leadership was, by and large, not honouring or worshipful unto God. Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And yeah, each continued to walk progressively further from God's vision of life, uh, lived with him and a people devoted unto him. And throughout this period of Israel's history, God raised up messengers who we know as prophets uh, to speak his word to Israel, to Judah, and to the nations surrounding them. And today in our message, in our time together, we're actually going to rewind um, the chronology a little bit um, to look uh, at one of those prophets today. So we're taking it back about 50 to 70 or so years from the message that Joel um, gave last week uh, to turn the spotlight to the prophet of Jonah. And um, yeah, we're going to hone in on the book of Jonah together this morning. But how about we pray before we open the word? Father, we, we thank you that your word is living and active and that you have things for us in store this morning as we come to, to sit under the authority of your word, um, to be encouraged by it, to be challenged by it, to be changed by your word, Lord, to be more of the people um, that you would have us, uh, that you would call us to be because of the radical love that you've shown us through Jesus Christ. So we pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to respond, Lord, to what you would have us um, grow in, what you would have us um, 
marinate in this morning in your word, we pray. Holy Spirit, move here in our hearts, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, Jonah this morning, and I would hazard a guess that most of us who are either here in the building or listening online, um, most of us, whether we're believers or maybe we're just inquiring or curious, most of us think that we know something about the story of Jonah. Am I right? Put up your hand if you think that you know something of the story of Jonah. Why don't a few people just call out what first comes to mind when they hear Jonah? Whale, fish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that. <laughs> Sorry. It's not about the whale. <laughs> Don't steal my line. <laughs> um, absolutely. I think Jonah and the story, the book of Jonah, has come to um, be very popular in um, the Christian imagination, the biblical imagination. And most people, whether they are of faith or otherwise, do know something about the story of Jonah. Um, and I would put to you this morning that I think the problem is that although we think we know the story of Jonah we actually probably don't know the story of Jonah, at least for the important message that the writers, and therefore God, because we believe that the scripture is inspired by God, would have us here as we come to the book of Jonah. Um, I think churches over time have largely either reduced the contents of the book of Jonah to simplistic moral messages, uh, like don't disobey God or else, that would be one that people popularly would take away from the book of Jonah or to some sort of like biblical legend status. There's this big fish and wow, what do we do with that? And we kind of mythologize that a bit like the Loch Ness Monster or something uh, like that. But when allowed to speak for itself, the book of Jonah actually brings quite a confronting message to its hearers. And... That is because the book of Jonah, the intent of the book of Jonah, it's meant to function like a mirror to our own souls. It is meant to function like a mirror to our own souls. Unlike other prophetic books in the Bible, which often ex uh, contain extensive oracles of you know, judgment or encouragement or prophecy of things to come, the book of Jonah in the Hebrew, the oracle, that message of prophecy, Prophecy is actually only five words long in the Hebrew. And the message is 40 more days and the city of Nineveh will be overthrown. It's actually only five words in the Hebrew. Why is this so short? Why is this prophecy so short? As I said, it's because we are not, as readers coming to the book of Jonah, we are not meant to so much focus in on the prophecy itself, but the prophet Jonah. We are meant, as we come to Jonah, to reflect on the responses, the behaviours, the attitude that Jonah um, brings to bear as he journeys from Israel to Joppa. Everything that happens in between ends up in Nineveh. We are meant to ask ourselves, as we look at Jonah as a mirror, what of Jonah is there in me? What of Jonah is there in me. So first, before we launch further into that, let's get some background information down pat. Who was Jonah? Did you know that the book of Jonah is actually not the first time that Jonah appears in the Bible? It's not the first time he appears in the Bible. In 2 Kings 14 to uh, verse 23 to 25, 
we learn that Jonah was actually a well-known prophet um, to the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II from 786 to 746 BC or thereabout. Um, And prior to his eventful journey to Nineveh, Jonah had prophesied the restoration of the northern borders of Israel, consolidating their borders against ongoing Assyrian aggression. So as Joel spoke about last week, remember the superpower of the day Assyria? They were continuing to to hassle, to push um, the northern kingdom of Israel, trying to take away their land and come and occupy that region. And Jonah had prophesied that, no, this will not happen. Your borders are going to be made solid. They're going to be made secure and safe. So, put simply, Assyria was no friend, and by extension, Nineveh, because that's who we hear of um, in the book of Jonah, they were no friend to Israel. And I've kind of just given it away, but who can guess what was the capital of the Assyrian Empire of the day? It was Nineveh. So, when we come to look at the book of Jonah, when we need to understand a few things in order to get the fullness of the message and the bigger picture of what's happening as Jonah goes to Nineveh. We need to keep a few things in mind. The first is that Nineveh, the city that God calls Jonah to preach a message of judgment, but also an offer of repentance and salvation to, was the capital of Assyria the world's superpower of the day. Secondly, because of the ongoing threat of Assyrian aggression and their threat of expansion south into the nation of Israel, Jonah, an Israelite, would not have held high regard for Nineveh or Assyria. And thirdly, Jonah's previous prophecy that Israel would consolidate its borders against Assyria would have been a very popular one, yes? The people would have liked that message that he gave. However, his call to preach, by extension, mercy and salvation to Israel's aggressive enemies, probably not so popular a prophecy. So you're starting to get a bit of a picture of just why Jonah might have been reluctant to put it mildly, to go and preach God's message to Nineveh, the capital city of their arch enemy. I think that paints a bit more of a picture of what we're coming with as we come to the book of Jonah. So with this as our backdrop this morning, let's do a recap of the events of the book of Jonah as they're recorded. And as we're doing that, keep in mind this question of the mirror. What of their... What of Jonah, sorry, do I see in me? What of Jonah is there in me? So, the book of Jonah. So Yahweh, the Lord, he spoke to Jonah and called him. And this is Jonah 1, verse 2. He says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And what did Jonah do? We all know, right? Verse 3 He ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now, there's a map that we can bring up here, and some of you might have seen this before. But so Jonah journeyed from, he went up to the port of Joppa. Nineveh is about 885 kilometers thereabouts to the northeast. Where's Tarshish? The bottom of Spain, 4,023 kilometers away. So he boarded a boat 
to go as far as he could in the opposite direction to where God had called him to go. He tries in all of his wisdom to flee from the Lord. This book is just so full of irony and satire. It is, it is a great read. And like we've said, this God's Story series, we don't have time to go into all the details every week, but go and read the book of Jonah and see if you can pick up some of the irony and the satire here that God is using to make the point. So he boards a boat and he sails in the very opposite direction from where the Lord had asked him to go. Why? Why did he do this? Because Jonah didn't want Nineveh his enemy, the capital city of his enemy, to experience the grace and mercy of God. We find out later in the book that that's why he did that, because he says, I knew that you would forgive them. And we'll get to that later. So Jonah fled to Tarshish because he didn't want his enemies to be the recipients of God's compassion. Those who had subjected Israel to fear, to ongoing aggression, to taunts, bullying, preached salvation to them. No way! He didn't want that at all. He was bitter, most likely, and he wanted in all his might and everything that he could do to thwart God's plans to forgive the repentant. He wasn't okay with his enemies, Assyria, the city of Nineveh, receiving the gifts of God's grace and his mercy. So Jonah's in the boat, headed in the very opposite direction to where he's meant to be going, And Yahweh, the Lord, he sends such a violent storm that we read that it threatens to pull, to break the boat, the ship apart to pieces. Forget, if you've ever been down to Tasmania on the spirit of Tasmania, forget those waves. This would be something else. It actually threatened to break the boat to pieces. And long story short, the sailors discover, the sailors on the boat discover that Jonah's the one responsible for this storm, for their peril. And Jonah tells them after an exchange, and you can read that yourselves, he tells them to throw him into the sea and that should calm the storm down. And eventually, the sailors then try and outrow the storm and all these other things, but eventually they reluctantly and repentantly throw Jonah into the waves, into the storm. And as Jonah had suggested, the sea calmed down and the sailors actually worship the Lord. And as I said just before, the book of Jonah is full of such satire. It uses extreme, unbelievable humour and irony to convey a very serious point. And here is an example of such satire. We see a bunch of rough, tough, pagan sailors, reverent, worshipful, in awe of the Lord, more so than God's chosen prophet, Jonah, Jonah had told them, if you read that exchange, he said that he worshipped the Lord. However, his actions to date have proved anything but, right? He is not in line, in step with God's plan for his life. Um, So yeah, on the one hand, we have this bunch of sailors worshipping the Lord who don't even know the Lord, and Jonah, God's chosen prophet, from God's chosen people, doing the exact opposite. Keep this in mind. So Jonah is thrown into the raging sea and God calms the storm and in his sovereignty he provides a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And this is the part of the story that most people focus in on. He provides a huge fish to swallow Jonah and keep him safe and well for three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. So of the book of Jonah, four chapters, it's quite a short book, 
three verses are given to the mention of this fish. We shouldn't actually get too bogged down on the issue of the fish. Um, In Matthew 12, Jesus himself uh, has no issue with the reality that a fish swallowed Jonah, and we believe Jesus to be the Son of God. So he had no issue that a fish swallowed Jonah. So it's fair to say that the fish is more than mere legend as to what type of fish and how someone could survive inside a fish and for that length of time. I think we have to have faith that um, God throughout history and throughout all times can and does continue to move in mysterious and wonderful ways. Um, Again, three verses of the book of Jonah dedicated to the fish. Let's not get stuck on the fish and lose sight of the bigger picture, the bigger message that God would have for us in this book. Um, So from the place of the belly of the fish, Jonah prays to God and recalls with gratitude how Yahweh has saved him from certain death at the depths of the ocean, how Yahweh displayed his love to him in the rescue. In Jonah 2 verse 9, he says, But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. So here we have Jonah who is in a place where he is ready to go and do what God has asked him to. We don't actually see, uh, if you read through that whole prayer or song of Jonah in the fish, falls, at least what's recorded, there's no real admission of wrongdoing as such. We don't see such an obvious sign of a repentant spirit as we might with like King David in the Psalms where he admits his guilt and desires to turn back to God in that way. But we might be reading between the lines there. It's probably not the most important part of the book. But repentant or not, God's purposes for Jonah remain. He wants Jonah to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. So he commands the fish to vomit Jonah up onto dry land so that he can be off on his way. What a lovely, here you go. (laughs) But I guess, yeah, that's a a way to come up out of the ocean, isn't it? Um, So from this time, Jonah obeys and he goes and preaches this message that God has given him to Nineveh. And the message, as I said, five words long in the Hebrew. It's in Jonah 3 verse 4 and says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What happens next? It is, again, it's it's such a humorous look at these events in this book. But it's nothing short of incredible. Because the people of Nineveh, they hear the word of the Lord spoken through Jonah and they believe God. This is a pagan nation who are an aggressive, like, no, they don't hold back at all in terms of how they occupy nations and take over the world. They're just greedy for themselves, but they believe God. They believe and they repent. A fast was proclaimed, and this signals the seriousness with which they receive God's word to them. And all of them in the city, they put on sackcloth, a a sign of deep mourning over sin and of deep and true repentance Can you imagine with five short words, God's spirit moves an entire city of, it says later in the book of Jonah, 120,000, maybe more. 
um, to genuine repentance. What an incredible event. Five words as Jonah walks through the city preaching this message. And it wasn't just the commoners who repented. The king of Nineveh also joins this repentance movement. He covers himself with sackcloth and he sits down in the dust as a sign of genuine humility before God. Guys, remember, Assyria is the world's superpower of the day. This would be what our modern day equivalent of maybe the president of the US leading his entire nation to repent before the Lord. This is no small thing that happens here in the book of Jonah. And this is genuine, heartfelt repentance, the type of repentance that saves and that brings new life and hope. In Jonah 3, verses 7 to 9, it says, This is the proclamation he, the king of Nineveh, issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on the Lord. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. This is the king of Nineveh declaring these things. What was God's response? Jonah 3 verse 10 says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Isn't that beautiful? The heart of God to save. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So we've seen so far the sailors feared the Lord and worshipped him. The people of Nineveh called on the name of the Lord. The king of Nineveh himself was humbled before the Lord. And even the animals, we read there, even the animals joined in this repentance movement before the Lord. True repentance, coming before the Lord and submitting to his ways. And what of Jonah? What of Jonah? God's prophet from his chosen people who had himself, not that long earlier, experienced extreme radical grace and mercy when, despite turning from Yahweh and his will, that he would go to Nineveh and preach this message, he had been sovereignly preserved, rescued by the provision of a miraculous fish to save him from death. What does this Jonah do next? We read in Jonah 4, verses 1 to 3. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong that the whole city had been saved. This seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Wow. Wow. That's extreme. Has Jonah really such a short memory? Did he forget the journey that brought him to Nineveh? Did he forget that God had just saved him from death? Jonah, it seems, has the equivalent of like a two or three-year-old child's temper tantrum 
before the Lord. He's bringing it back to God. I knew that you would love them. I knew it. And now look what's happened. This was not in my plan. God asks him, what right do you have to be angry, Jonah? And then he makes his point clear by virtue of a lived parable because Jonah goes, he goes off and he goes to sulk just outside the city of Nineveh and he makes himself a shelter to sit there and watch and wait what will happen to Nineveh next. And we could read between the lines, but I would hazard to guess he's probably hoping that maybe their repentance wasn't genuine and here I am, I'm going to have front row seats to their destruction. That's probably what Jonah goes to sit and watch and do. And so he's sitting there, he makes himself a shelter and God causes a leafy plant to grow up and to provide shade for Jonah. And Jonah was happy about this, the Bible says. But the next day, God sent a worm to eat the plant so that it died and exposed Jonah to the hot sun once again. And um, in Jonah 4 verse 9, uh, we read there, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Because he was angry. He was angry that this plant had grown up and he'd enjoyed its shade and then it had died so quickly. And Jonah replies, it is. It is right for me to be angry. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Seriously, Jonah. <laughs> wow. Now, like, Joel and I, we have young children and that's probably the type of response that you'd expect to hear from a child at dinner time when they're absolutely exhausted from the day that they've had and they're sounding pretty ungrateful, um, ungracious, Tantruming, entitled, like a child that's being trained. But this, this is God's prophet. Again, his chosen messenger from his chosen people. He, as with all of Israel, meant to be a source of blessing, a conduit of blessing to all the nations of the world. Not that they would just know God's mercies and love for themselves, but that they would be conduits, that God's blessing and mercy would flow through them to all the peoples of the world. Remember back in Abraham, the, the promise there? He's meant to be inviting Assyria and Nineveh to join in the joy of knowing and worshipping the Lord. And the Lord replies to Jonah and his tantrum, so to speak, by way of rebuke. In Jonah 4, verses 10 to 11, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Can you hear the utter dismay in Yahweh's voice, utter disbelief that his prophet could still, after everything he'd been through, the events of his journey even to get to Nineveh, could still so misunderstand the heart of God to bring salvation to the world. And that, friends, is where the book of Jonah ends, with that question. With that question, we never find out what Jonah did or thought or said next. We don't know. What was his response to God's final word of correction? And we don't find out because, as I mentioned earlier, the book of Jonah is meant to function like a mirror to our own souls, to our hearts. 
as God's followers. We are meant to understand God's concluding words, his question here, as a question not only directed to Jonah at that point in time in history, but also to us. How am I, with God, loving my enemies? And maybe you don't think, you think, oh, I don't have any enemies, but what about people who are different to us? Maybe who walk a different walk of life, who believe different things to us, different lifestyles. How am I, with God, loving my enemies? Or those who are different, maybe, to me. Do I, by my deepest attitudes, my actions in the deepest secret inner part of my person, do I show a deep understanding and appreciation of the grace that God has lavished on me? Do I hope and pray? Do I desire the best for my enemies or for those who are different from me, who are far from the Lord? Do I freely forgive as God freely forgives me? Because remember, Jonah had an, an issue with Assyria. He had an issue with Nineveh. These are the people who have been oppressing him and his people for years upon years. He didn't want them to experience God's grace. Then he experiences God's grace in a radical way. Can he offer that same grace and hope that others experience that same grace too. Do I, radical, do I love radically in the same way that God loves me in a radical way? You see, Jonah was one of God's chosen people, as I said earlier, an Israelite. He was part of a nation that was meant to be the source of blessing to all the world. And more than that, Jonah was God's chosen messenger, his prophet at that time, to the nation of Israel. And yet we see in all the series of events that are recorded in the book of Jonah surrounding Nineveh, we don't see that truly that he was truly deeply alive, transformed in his heart by the good news that God, as he said himself, and as God calls himself back in Exodus, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah, by all that we see in the book of Jonah, he knows that, but does he know that? And does he live that out and have a free hand where he's like, yes, I want for you to experience, I want for you to know this same God that I know. And so friends, as we consider the book of Jonah today and the message we do, we see it's like a mirror is being held up to our own hearts. We can ask ourselves today as I sit here or as I listen online, am I being truly, deeply made alive in the good news that God has saved a sinner like me? Saved one who would so offend him and his grace by living apart from him, from turning away from him, living for my own comfort, my own honour, my own pride, my own ease of life. He would offer an olive branch of um, extravagant grace through Jesus' own death on the cross to take the punishment for that offence so that I could be friends, reconciled with God and turn to him. Am I deeply, truly alive 
in that good news today? Does it continue to transform me and the ways that I engage with others and the world around me? Or do I see a little, or maybe if we're honest this morning, and there are times in our lives when this is the case, maybe there's a lot of Jonah in me. More judgment and resentment perhaps than grace and love in my spirit towards those who have wronged me, those who have hurt me, those who are apart from God and who live a very different lifestyle, have very different life choices to me. Do I actually believe that God wants the best for them? Or do I think that judgment's the only, the only course of action? Do I harbour love and grace and hope in my spirit toward them? Romans 3, verse 23. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Are we living, friends, like we remember that, but not remember in our head, but in our heart, with hearts prostrate before him in wonder and praise and awe that God's grace extended so far, as, as the song says, to save a wretch like me and call me out as a saint? Are we living like that? Or are we like Jonah, so quick to forget the extreme mercies of God? In the book of Galatians, we see the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And this isn't an exhaustive list. This is just the type, what it should look like in our lives as we are transformed by the love of God. Are these fruits, fruits of this type, are they increasing? Are they evident and in increasing measure in our lives today? You see, I think repentance, it's especially in churches of this modern era, it's not talked about often enough. We can be so quick to move on to talking about new life and freedom and fullness of life, but we forget that those things come about through a crossing over from death to life, and that crossing over necessitates repentance. Repentance being a humble and considered and penitent turning from the things in our lives which show that we are living apart from God and his best and are turning instead to choose to walk in step with God and his spirit. And this turning is made possible for us today by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he's inviting us into those things, to die to ourselves and to be brought into new life because Jesus went before us into new life. So repentance this morning. We all, this message, it's not like, oh, I could ask a few and a few people would come forward for prayer. We are all constantly in need of repentance. There are constantly places and spaces in our lives, in our hearts that are not pleasing to God. They don't show that deep sense of gratitude and of worship and of turning that um, an awe, I guess, for his love for us that he has shown us through Jesus Christ. And maybe today there might be some here or watching online today or later in the week. Maybe you don't yet call yourself a follower of Jesus and you haven't yet stepped into this new life that's made possible by his death on the cross on your behalf. 
Maybe today, God, you can feel that God is prodding on your heart, pulling on those heartstrings, inviting you to turn and to come to him, maybe for the first time. Or maybe today you know that you are his child, but his spirit, by his grace, and it's all for grace, it's all for our good and for his glory that he calls us to repent. But his spirit is making you aware of areas in your life that you know aren't in keeping with the grace that he has shown you through Jesus. Maybe unforgiveness toward others, judgment of people who are either inside or outside of God's family. Maybe you know this morning that God is speaking to your heart. You know what those things are as he's tugging on you. And friends, he invites us to be transformed. He invites us to be transformed. And that process, it can be difficult and it can feel hard, but it is, it's for our good. As it says in Romans 8, that we are transformed into Jesus' likeness. He is the first to go ahead of us and he invites us to be transformed into his image to be made fully alive as God always intended for us to be fully alive. And God gets the glory when that happens as well, which is a beautiful thing. And this transformation, it's important to realise, and we can't say this enough, and I think it's a, it, we can quickly fall into the trap of thinking that it happens this way, that we need to try harder. And that is not the gospel. We do not try harder. We come to God by grace alone and we keep in step in faith by grace alone. We are saved by grace and we are transformed by grace. Transformation in God's economy and his kingdom happens as we behold and we worship Jesus. As we behold Christ and we fall at his feet in worship, loving, adoring him. That's where transformation happens. It's all by his grace. And this morning we've asked the question, what of Jonah is there in me? What do I need to repent of in light of God's extreme mercy to me? We're going to have a time of coming around the table together as we finish this morning. I invite that welcome team to come up. And um, as the elements are distributed, um, we're going to play a song this morning um, called Nineveh. And we've asked this morning, what of Jonah is there in me? But because the message of the book of Jonah is about repentance and true repentance, we could also ask the question, what of Nineveh is there in me? Because God called Nineveh to repent. And as we listen to this song this morning, I'd invite you just to come before the Lord and take a moment, because we're all in need of this, myself included. We are all in need of this opportunity this morning to come before the Lord and to say, God, what is not pleasing to you? What would you have transformed in me so that you might get the worship and that I might better, better reflect you in the world and for my good, because that's where fullness of life is, in his image. So as we play this song, I invite you to take that opportunity with the Lord this morning and just uh, reflect um, on that with him.